we are starting a new series that we're just simply titling, What is the Gospel? We're going to ask the question, what is the gospel, and we're going to unpack that. Um, Let's watch this video. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus... This is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? 
Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom and to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. As we begin this series, um, you know, we want to rightfully understand the answer to the question, what is the gospel? And this was a video that, uh, the best we can, uh, of the videos I found, gave a short summary of our understanding of the importance of what the good news is, why it's called good news, specifically this idea of gospel coming and sharing good news, a herald coming and sharing good news. But I want to give us a simple definition that we're going to use throughout uh, this series. Now, this is kind of an, uh, an oxymoron, if you will. I'm going to give a short definition, and then I'm going to spend eight weeks talking and trying to answer the question, what is the gospel? As if to say that this simple definition will likely be um, insufficient to cover every detail that needs to get covered. But what definition perfectly can. So if you have kind of a fill-in-the-blank, this is your only fill-in-the-blank, and I'm already giving it to you early on in today's sermon, but it's simply this. We're going to find the gospel in this phrase. God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the work of Jesus. God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the work of Jesus. In the coming weeks, we'll unpack this statement in detail. We'll look at the gospel story today. We'll look at the gospel as story. Over the next three weeks, we'll look at gospel as truth, that it's a story, but it's also true, made up of facts. We'll look at specifically justification, sanctification, and glorification, doctrinal pieces to help us understand when the scripture talks about salvation What exactly is it saying? What does it mean? And helps us understand those foundational truths that are part of the story. But I want to shape today, starting this series, with the gospel as story so we don't get so bogged down into the truth that the gospel is truth, that it's made up of facts, it's made up of propositions, it's made up of things that matter as far as details and facts, but at the same time, the gospel is much bigger than just facts. This video showed this, that belief is not just alignments of our minds, but it's the surrender of our hearts. Belief is recognizing that Jesus is king, that he is Lord, and surrendering our lives to him. So I want us to understand the story, and then as we, over the next three weeks after that, we'll look at gospel truths. And then we'll look at how the gospel impacts our daily life. We'll look at gospel as community, gospel as identity, and gospel in life and rhythms. What does it look like to live this out every single day in our life? So over the next six to eight weeks, as we begin to unpack this, this is our goal. Today's sermon is topical, which means that I'm not unpacking one particular text. We will find ourselves back 
and forth in Ephesians 2 and another text throughout this series. But I want us to go ahead and read three other passages of Scripture just at the beginning that are similar to Ephesians 2 that begin to give us the uh, parameters as we talk about the gospel as story today. First, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Think about this in the idea of the good news. The good news has come in the person of Jesus to bring salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Then in the next chapter, Titus 3, 4 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, you're going to see, I read these together, he's basically saying the same thing in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but using just a little different language to make it vivid for us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he what? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the good news that I proclaim to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. As we look at gospel as story today, we, if you can think back all the way to 2020, we started a series, we went through a series in 2020 called The Story of Scripture. And we framed every story that we read throughout Genesis to Revelation in that series through the gospel story or what we will call the four acts of Scripture or the four acts of the gospel story. And I put a question on there for you. What are those? Well, here they are. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The four acts of the gospel story, when we talk about the gospel story today, those are the four acts that we can see all of Scripture playing out. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let's begin to unpack those together. When I immediately start talking about creation, especially if I'm talking to a non-believer, someone who's not a Christian, or someone who even is a Christian but doesn't hold to the authority of Scripture, what I mean by holding to authority of Scripture, we believe that this Bible that we hold in our hands is given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through human authors, into our hands so that every word that is in this book is intended to be here and is accurate and trustworthy. And in this book, we understand that Scripture says that creation, that God created all things, Genesis 1 and 2. 
But when I begin talking about the gospel story or this story of history or Jesus' story, story of scripture, whatever title you want to give to it, when we begin to talk about creation, right there I begin to lose people because that's nonsense, right? That's a myth to believe that God has created all things. Don't we know without a shadow of a doubt that everything was created through evolution and Big Bang or whatever different theories that may come? Well, even within even Christian belief, there's different debates about how we interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2. And so what I want to do as we begin to talk about the four acts of God's story, I want to talk about the fall first. And then as I begin to establish what I believe, the truthfulness of the fall, it will begin to establish the truthfulness of creation, and then which will lead us to understand redemption and restoration. Let's talk about the fall for a second. When we think about the gospel story, Tim Keller calls it a true myth. True myths. Play on words, because a lot of times when we think about myth, there's kind of two definitions. A myth is an older story that usually has supernatural figures in within the story. And the second definition that often comes with it is an older story that's not true. And so when we think about myth, we also think about something that's not true. It's, it's, it has mythical beings. It's an older story. It's ways that we describe the world and different things. And Christianity is often, for those who don't believe it especially, are put, it is put in the myth category. But when Keller calls it a true myth, what he's saying is it's a myth in the sense that it's a powerful story with supernatural figures that does explain why things are the way they are, but it is a true myth. It's a true myth, meaning that it's a story that we believe to be true and explains things. So beginning with the fall, as we think about the fall, it's not hard for us to see when we look around the world around us that there is brokenness in the world around us. It's not hard to believe that. It's easy for any different group within society and culture, all of which are saying this, but maybe in different ways, but they're crying out for justice in some capacity. It's the, it's the thing, and I'm not, I'm not uh, bashing it, I'm simply pointing it out, but it's the thing in our culture today is to call for justice. And I'm grateful that justice and groups that have not had justice are getting so more than they have in past. And so I'm celebrating this emphasis on justice. I'm celebrating this emphasis that it comes to even when we think about morality. An interesting thing when you begin to study sociology is how do sociologists who don't believe in creation, who don't believe in a creator or the Christian truths, how do you begin to explain morality? Every group within society, they might claim it at a different level, but there, I've yet to find anyone really who says that we should have no morals or that there should be no justice. But when we look at the world, we can recognize things are not as they should be, that people are being impressed, wrongfully so, that there are people who are in need and we should help them. Then when we look around at society and we look around things, there are problems that need to be fixed. Many organizations, many hours, much money, and people are spending trying to fix things in which they see are broken, not as they should be. But here's the question. When someone cries out, things are not as they should be, the question is, who determines how things should be? Specifically, if you have someone who believes 
in evolution in the sense of survival of the fittest, that we are where we are and culture and society is the way it is because that is the best way in which we are to thrive as human beings. That if we have survived because we are the fittest, we are the smartest, and we've done what is necessary in order to get here. And sociologists who don't believe in a higher moral giver, that is God, will say that morals are something that we created evolutionary-wise that just happened in order to help us survive. So morals are nothing other than just a tool that has helped us survive other aspects of creation. Therefore, we're the fittest and we're the best. But why does it have to be so? For us to even say, okay, morals may have helped us get to where we are, who is it to say today that you should live a certain way or do a certain thing if simply it's just a matter of who's going to survive, who's the fittest, who is there to say that there should be morals? Well, we would very much within the Christian worldview and theology say, yes, we should have morals, and we can champion those morals, and the world around us champions those morals, and they say things are not as they should be, but who is to determine that things should be as they are? If you do not have anyone and I'm going to use this language, objective morality, if you do not have someone giving objective morality, meaning moral expectations that are outside of you, meaning that there's, we have objective laws. So let's use this. Um, if I speed and I get a ticket, um, there's a law that is outside of me that has authority to give me that ticket. Understand that? It's not me deciding I do or don't want a ticket. I wish it was that that was the case. I don't want this ticket. Thank you, officer. See you later. But there is an objective, meaning there's a law outside of me that gives authority for that ticket to be given. So when we talk about morality to make statements that you, we should treat one another with love and that we should do this or do that and we should not murder, we should not steal, we should not these things. And we should do these things, treat people fairly with respect and on we go. If we make any claims to morality we got to be answer the question, who says so? You? But there's going to be a standard that is often given. And we as Christians understand that we believe objective morality, meaning there is one outside of us that gives those standards. But if you do not believe in creation, and you do not believe in a creator, and you do not believe in morals that are outside of the human person, then you have no right to call for justice or morality within this broken world. But yet we do, as if to say, I believe. One of the clearest biblical truths that is undeniable, maybe explained differently, but is undeniable in our culture today is the reality of brokenness and fall within our world. And scripture paints this clearly, how we got to where we are. And I just simply want to put forward as we think about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, that the fall is this world that we live in that is the reality of our sin and brokenness. Sin, meaning our rebellion against God that said, it's going to be about me. And in that, we have fallen short of God's glory, and then brokenness and death has entered the world. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says that because of that sin, death entered into our world. Brokenness has entered into our world, and all of creation knows that things are not as they should be. And so we try to make claims that things should be a certain way. And I want to encourage us that you have no grounds to stand on a moral code if there's not a moral giver. And so because we would stand on a moral code, 
we must recognize there is a moral giver. Go with me for the sake of argument. Understand that you can have, we can have a longer conversation about this. And if you're in here as a skeptic, or if you're in here as someone who's trying to learn about Christianity when, with a little more time, I want to walk through this. But go with me for argument. If we want to claim justice and morality, then we must claim it on a basis outside of ourselves, objective morality. And if there is an objective morality, morality outside of us, then there has to be someone who put that there, a higher authority, which we would say is God. And we would say that God has created all things, and he stands outside of his creation. So let's go with this. If God is creator, and he has created his world, and we have broken that world with our sin then here's where the problem lies. What hope is there for us? What hope is there for us to ask for forgiveness or to be made right with the holy God when we've broken that law? What hope is there for me when I get that parking ticket, except to pay that parking ticket? I hope that there's a mistake, and I can argue that mistake. I've gotten successfully one ticket removed. The other 30 did not. But on what hope do I have if I have fallen short of the standard? I I have no hope. When you and I recognize and look at, and just for the sake of argument, whether you believe this or not, this is what the Bible's talking about, the gospel story, but go with me. Let's, Let's say there is a creator, and he has created all things, and he has created us and has told us that, hey, here's an here's an expectation I give you. Do not rebel against me, but if you do, you will surely die. And brokenness and death will enter your life and this world. And we do rebel against him. And brokenness and death has entered our lives and our world. And we see that in history. We see that in the world around us today. What hope is there for us to be made right with a holy and just God who has the ability to speak us into creation? This is not some small, meek and mild fictitious person we have in our mind. This is someone who speaks the galaxies into existence by the word of his mouth, speaks it all, and scripture says he holds all the universes in his hand. What hope is there for us when we've rebelled against a God like that? What hope is there for us when we have made ourselves the God of our own lives in sin? This, and I want to do my best, to help us understand, because we want to talk about a God of love, and that's absolutely right. He is a God of love. This is the gospel story, but he's also a holy God who cannot deny his own character. Meaning, as a holy and just God, he cannot just remove, I don't want to mean to be trite and disrespectful, but he can't just remove the parking ticket from us. He, he can't remove the fact that we've broken his law. He can't just remove it and say it's no big deal, because then he wouldn't be a just God anymore. What if I could just go, judge, it doesn't really matter, you don't really have authority, just forget about my parking ticket. Or if he said the other way, I do have authority, but I'm never going to hold you accountable, so who cares about your parking ticket? Like, we would go, that's not a very good judge. And in the same way, God who is holy and just, we are held accountable for our own sin and our actions. This is the story of the Bible. But, from the moment, and we're going to memorize this, I had a pastor who was much funnier than I. Brian can get away with this. I cannot. He would get to Ephesians 2, 4 and say, but God. Just talked about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, all the problems. And he'd get to Ephesians 4 and he'd say, but God. And then he would make this joke. Where would my butt be if it weren't for God's butt? 
See, I know you find it funny. You pull that off. I was a kid, though, hearing that, and it, it, but for me, it stuck. I, I told you I couldn't pull it off and be very funny. I can't. But, let, but in all seriousness, where, Scripture, where would we be if it weren't for God? But God. And this is the beautiful story. This is the good news. This is what the video was trying to display in a short stint, is that there is brokenness and hurt, and things are not as they should be. And we are spinning our wheels, people after people, generation after generation, culture, people groups, Democrats, Republicans, people in between, all around, going, here's what we got to do to make things right. But there is a God. For God so loved the world that he came as the messenger He came, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He came as the one running to us when there was no hope, there was nothing but despair, crying out, I am king. I am the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am Yahweh. I am. And he, contrary to the way the world does things, is he died on the cross for us. Now, we're going to begin to unpack why his death was so important in the next three weeks as we talk about the details of justification, sanctification, glorification, fancy words, but they're important aspects. We want to understand them. Why did he have to die? And the short answer is he had to die because our sins had to be paid for. Someone had to pay the parking ticket. And I hope, just a side note, because I've said parking ticket a few times, I'm not equating our sin to a parking ticket. I'm simply illustrating don't walk out of here and say, our pastor has, he's just talking about parking tickets. He doesn't have a very good view of sin. I have a very high view of sin. But New Yorkers understand parking tickets. I'm being a very good contextual preacher. I get an A in class. I want us to understand that we have a debt that cannot be erased by ourselves. But we have a God who bore that debt for us on the cross. He had to die because you were supposed to die, and for him to forgive you of your sins, he had to die in your place. But he was victorious when he was buried and raised to life on the third day. So that what? He created all things good for him to be king and Lord. We messed that up in the fall and brokenness. He was the only one who could come, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he is offering redemption to us. What does it mean to redeem? If you ever redeem a voucher or something, like you get someone to go and it's kind of paid on your behalf. A lot of times if I go to hospitals or different things, sometimes parking tickets get redeemed where you go and you don't have to pay for it. Someone else kind of covers that for you. Well, this is the idea that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he redeemed, paid the price for us so that we could have what we didn't earn or deserve. So that we could be brought back into his kingdom. We could be brought back into relationship with him. This is the good news of the gospel. When there was no hope, Jesus is our hope. It's that simple, but it's so important. The good news of Jesus is that in the brokenness in the world around us, and things are not as they should be, he says they can be made back again. They will be made back again through myself. What does he ask of us? To simply put our faith and trust in him. This is the good news. This is why it is good news. Notice the video started with a picture of destruction. The kingdom had lost, and there was like, what are we going to do? And a messenger comes and offers hope. I know it seems like Jerusalem has been lost. I know it seems like that all has failed, 
but good news that Jesus is coming. He doesn't talk about Jesus in that sense at the time, but a king is coming who we now know to be Jesus. A king is coming and he will reign on his throne for all eternity and that he will make things right again. He will redeem us unto himself so that we can be in his kingdom once again. And then he promises in the last act to restore all of creation back to the way it was in creation. You could even say it this way, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Because God is restoring and recreating things back to the way they were. He on his throne and all of creation worshiping him. No more brokenness in this world. No more fallen. No more tears. That's why Revelation says that he will wipe away all our tears. Guys, you and I have hope and a promise of not only life eternal in this moment, but life eternal for all eternity. I know that sounds simple, but I want us to get this. We'll talk about this when Sermon 4 on glorification, but we often think about salvation as in this moment, something I'm doing now, and it is. You're putting your faith and trust in him, and God's bringing joy, and he's going to restore brokenness and gives us a hope for eternity. But there's a day coming where Christ will come back, and Christ is going to return, and he is going to make all things new, and I have the assured hope that I will stand in his kingdom one day, not because of myself, but because of Jesus and what he has done. Therefore, that is good news. I have a parking ticket that is impossible to be paid no matter how much I work, no matter if I have all all the wealth in the world, it cannot be paid. It is impossible to be paid. And therefore, there was one who paid it on my behalf and said, you no longer have to pay it. Here is forgiveness. Here is salvation. I don't know about you, but that is good news. And that is the only hope that there is in this world for all eternity. It's the only hope that our current world has. There's a lot of good organizations. There's a lot of good things that are happening. I'm grateful for the cry for morality. I'm grateful for the cry for justice. But there is no hope like Jesus. None. And we must recognize that and be a people. So when we talk about what is the gospel, the gospel we're going to unpack. But it is simply God himself. He has come to rescue and renew all of creation through the work of Jesus. All the brokenness he has come to rescue. All the people he has come to rescue and renew and make all things new again. Yes, we're going to see in the days to come that gospel is the fact that we were dead and made alive. The gospel is what we will talk about as justification. The gospel is what we'll understand as sanctification, being set aside. We'll understand that a part of that is good works and the promise of glorification. We will talk about all those details. We'll talk about facts within this gospel story, the theology of the gospel. But the gospel story is a story. It's a true myth about a God in a world that rebelled against him He loved so very much that he came within that world, dwelt in that world, lived in that world, loved on that world, and died at the hands of the people who lived in that world in order to redeem and rescue the people that killed him. This is the God that we serve. So here's how I want to end. I want you to ask this question to yourself. How does your life fit in that story? Because it's a myth in the sense that it's an old story. It's the oldest story in time. But it's a true myth, and it's a story that is still going today. It's a story in which you're a part of. And it's a story that you are a character in whether you realize it or not. It's a story in which you will either worship the king or you won't. 
It's a story in which you will serve him or you won't. It's a story in which you will believe in him or you won't. It's a story in which you will have hope in him or you won't. So the question is, where do you fit in that story? And have you trusted him as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you recognized that because of your own sin, you are unworthy to be in relationship with him? You are unworthy to be a part of his kingdom. But he loves you so very much that he has offered salvation to you if you put your faith and trust in him. Have you ever called upon him as Lord and Savior? Do you see your, the need for the good news? And do you see that Jesus is the good news? Do you see that he offers you that hope? And have you ever put your faith and trust in him? And then I want to encourage you also. Well, Paul's there. I, I hope and I pray that every person in this room will be able to say, yes, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. But if not, and you've got questions, and you want to talk more, I would love to talk to you about that and continue to unpack the truths of Scripture. But if you're in here and you go, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus, amen. The question still I want you to begin to continue to answer throughout this series is, what's my role in this story? You're not just a bystander character, but you're a character that matters. You're a character that God has a purpose for in your life. You're a character that is here, if nothing else, just to worship him, but he has so much more for you. Ephesians 2 ends with that he has good works prepared beforehand in which we are to walk. God has a plan and purpose for your life, and as we look at the gospel story, and we look at the gospel truths, and we look at the gospel identity, and gospel community, and gospel rhythms, answer the question, what is my life? What is the role God has for me in his plan of redemption and restoration? What is, well, how might I be a part of being the beautiful feet that brings the good news? This is what Paul would write in Romans. He would quote that passage, and he would give a challenge to the church to be a part of sharing the message, and you too can represent the beautiful feet that bring the good news of the gospel. New Hope, might we be a church that goes and shares the gospel and displays it to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this story. I thank you that you are a redeeming God. I thank you for all that you have done. Thank you that you have given over your life for the ransom of our sins so that we could be redeemed and that you promised to restore all things new. God, because when in the world we live in today, I recognize there is a need for things to be made new. There's brokenness and hurt all around us. But Jesus, we're able to carry on because I believe you are the good news and you promise redemption and restoration. That there is hope in you, even when it seems like all hope is lost. We can trust in you. So Jesus, I pray for the person in here who's struggling to believe, who's struggling to trust you as creator, and you as a good and holy God. Might they see you for who you are and put their faith and trust in you. Might they repent, meaning confess their sins and turn away from their sins, turn away from the life of rebellion against you and turn towards worship of you. Might their hearts just cry out, Lord, I surrender to you and I confess my sins to you. Might you be the Lord and Savior of my life. And might you rescue and renew and redeem their hearts today. Might you continue to make us like you today. But Jesus, might we be a gospel people who celebrate you, Jesus, as king, the good news, 
Might we cherish this good news? Might we celebrate it? And might we proclaim it to the world around us? Might there be great belief in this room today? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.